I'm Alex Trepchinski. I'm Angie Check. I'm Barbara Stewart. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I'm Marin Green. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Valerie Jacobson. And this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode 55 of the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. My guest today is Lauren Hall. She's a PhD, and she wrote a book called The Medicalization of Birth and Death. And man, does that not summarize my entire, like, life's work up until this point. So when I found this book, I don't know who had recommended it to me, but I reached out to her and she sent me a copy very graciously. And I started reading. I was like, holy smokes, this is the book that I figured I would eventually have to write. But she wrote it instead. Like, thank God. (laughs) The amount of work, the amount of research, the interviews that she's done. She interviewed a lot of my friends, people like Kristen Pascucci. And I think Hermine Hayes Klein was mentioned in there. And then there's there's sort of uh, a tangential reference to so many people I've worked with over my life who talking about these things, about the Yes, there are medical needs around birth and around death, right? Around death, for example, perhaps some additional pharmacology might be necessary if a person's in extraordinary pain from advanced cancer. Or in birth, um, perhaps there is an occasional um, need for, you know, C-section or for induction of labor. But when we see these two things as either failures of the medical system in the case of death or pathologies of the otherwise natural well-functioning human body, as in birth, we tend to bring in our tools that we learned in the allopathic toolkit that we have in our allopathic toolkit, like pharmacology, pharmaceuticals, birth control pills, surgery, etc. In the case of death, you might also add things like ventilators, uh, different dialysis technologies, artificial uh, blood pressure elevating medicines, you know, called pressors. You know, the list goes on and on. So if you see something as a failure, as in the case of death, then you aren't willing to accept that this is a natural part of life until you've, quote, tried everything. On the other hand, in birth, when you see it as a pathology, you throw more and more of your tools at a problem that is not pathologic by any stretch of the, uh, of the imagination in many regards. And even if it does develop some issues, we tend to have a very low threshold for intervening with with a lot of these tools. So I'm so happy to have Dr. Lauren Hall on the podcast to talk a little bit more about these topics. Uh, they're near and dear to me. And, and as, as I've said time and time again, if we want to see the world change, right, if we want to improve our economic systems or agricultural systems, if we want to figure out a, a better way of overseeing our societies through different political organizations, for example, if we want to try to solve those complex problems where there's so many voices in the arena and we can't get one simple thing right, which is either how we birth or how we death, depending on how you look at at, at life, um, because I consider them really two sides of the same coin. We can't get those things right. How are we going to fix these more complex problems? I mean, there's something so special. If you can just sit with birth or sit with death, there's something so special about it, right? There's in one case, there's an embodiment of the physical body, right? With your etheric, which is your life force, with the astral, which is the thinking, feeling part of you, and then the ego. And in death, you're actually seeing those things stripped away, right? There's something so beautiful and majestic about these two processes. And yes, it's very confronting to think about them as natural parts of life, but they are. (laughs) They're the most natural parts of our lives. So I'm very, very grateful to uh, to have Lauren here. We'll talk all about those things. I am currently sipping a coffee with some butter blended in. I had to take a nice sip there. It's um, early morning here at uh, in Chestnut Ridge. I'm here for anthroposophic medicine training, which is probably why you hear me getting all gushy-mushy about this more subtle bodies at play. But I do think that viewing the experience from the lens of anthroposophy is not a replacement or a rejection of allopathic medicine. It's actually a, an extension of allopathic medicine. The mantra in anthroposophic medicine, at least for this conference, is where your academic mind meets your intuitive heart. And I feel like that is such a beautiful, like th- this is where you go next after you've mastered the allopathic stuff. And none of us are true masters, but you know what I mean? Once you feel comfortable with it, then let's 
let's re-imbue you with the heart and soul of what got you here, which is connecting with other people. And you can't do that through pharmaceuticals and surgery. It's just, it just doesn't work the same way. So I'm, I'm like moving and grooving right now. I really hope you love episode 55. We are sponsored this episode by Needed. This is Needed.com. Use code BELOVED to save uh, money on some of the best prenatal nutrition on the planet. And then Organifi.com. You can go to Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash beloved. It'll pop up my little online store on their website. And uh, again, you'll, you'll, you'll save 20% um, either through that website or you just enter code beloved to save 20% on what I love. I actually am really, really digging their gold juice, which you can add to hot water. It has some adaptogenic properties and whatnot to it helps you fall asleep helps you make makes you real relaxed last night i took some helped me fall right to sleep and i did a little wim hof breathing beforehand a little stretching and took my my gold juice and then read for about a half an hour and pow i was reading steiner i was actually reading um, extending practical medicine by rudolf steiner and Ida Wegman, which are the two that kind of came together to create anthroposophic medicine in case you're curious Alrighty, uh, let's get to it. Uh, please enjoy my conversation here with Dr. Lauren Hall, the author of The Medicalization of Birth and Death. All right, today I'm here with Hopefully, we'll become really good friends, Lauren. You and I have so much in common, and you're a political scientist that have written a couple books. Most recently, The Medicalization of Birth and Death, which you were gracious enough to send me a copy. And this interview has been a long time coming because, as you know, I am both an OBGYN and I'm a hospice doctor. And I have seen all of the things that you describe in your book, which is just over 200 pages long. I've seen it in the flesh. I've operated in the system. I was born of the system. And then I made a conscious decision to buck the system and to do something that was sort of on my own, mostly because of the variety of, of challenges that we as people, or even you could, you could even say consumers of healthcare, the challenges that we find due to the over-medicalization, and I would even argue a phrase we could use is the over-pathologization of birth and death. Because when you pathologize something, it means, oh, there's a problem here and I need to fix it. And OBGYNs do 70% of training as surgeons, and so everything looks like a nail. And the hammer is surgery. So on the other end of the spectrum, death, it's one of these systems in which we will try absolutely everything and spend billions of dollars trying everything before we're willing to say this person may pass over through the portal, as if death itself is a failure of the modern medical system. So with that introduction, um, Lauren, welcome to my podcast. I've already introduced you in the intro. So why don't you tell me a little bit about why this topic became so important to you as a political scientist? Sure. So I had uh, originally, my background is I'm a political theorist, but my second field was something called biopolitics or politics and the life sciences that looked at sort of the intersection between, I did some bioethics, I did some, some health policy, but that actually wasn't the direction that my research was going. And so it wasn't until I had my first child or really mm. my first pregnancy. And, and that was my first intensive experience with the medical yeah. uh, industry and sort of the medical community. As it is for most um, women, by the way, you know, most people don't yeah. ever have to go in and then suddenly they're like, what on earth is this? So, <laughs> yeah, I had had some, you know, frustration sort of before then, but, but really this was my first uh, intensive experience and, and it was just heartbreaking and infuriating all yeah. at once. And yeah. so I... I ended up firing my first um, OB uh, when I was 16 weeks pregnant. I, I asked her, you know, when we start thinking about or talking about birth plans. And she said, well, uh, in this practice, we're really superstitious about birth plans. You know, they, <laughs> they, they usually sort of go the opposite of what we want. And I said, well, then that's a, that's a terrible sign in and of itself, right? Like yeah. if, if, if at your practice, the plan goes 180 every time, then I, I, I don't know. That tells me a lot. Yeah. So I fired her and ended up finding this wonderful um, family practice physician who was a former home birth midwife. So talk about like the best of both worlds, yeah. right? She had, wow. she had hospital admitting privileges. She was just absolutely wonderful. She and I just started over the course of my pregnancy talking more about why the system was the way that it was. Mm. And, and so, and, and she was, I thought just a beautiful 
person. She's really, really devoted her life to sort of birthing people and thinking about how to work within the system to protect people. But she was also sort of realistic about what we could expect. Um, you know, another piece of this is I was giving birth in New York State, and we only had two birth centers in the entire state. Yeah. So I, you know, I wasn't comfortable with my husband and I weren't comfortable with a home birth for a variety of reasons. But I thought, oh, you know, a birth center, that would be a great middle ground. And they don't exist in New York yeah, State. And yeah. and so so it was that experience of trying to find a birth um, that really fit me as a human being mm. and just being sort of stymied at every turn. And so I ended up having a, a hospital birth for all three of my girls with the family practice physician with the first, and then I had midwives for the second two. And I had a doula and I, and I was in a very privileged position. And so I, I had okay hospital births, I guess is what I'll say. But that, so as a scholar, I just started thinking to myself, like, why in the world is this, is the system set up the way that it is? Uh, and so I had also had experiences with my grandparents dying in hospice, um, you know, about five and 10 years before. And, and so I just started thinking to myself, like, there's so many similarities between birth and death. I just want to sort of think about mm. how these, how these systems are similar and how they differ. And so that's kind of how the the book started. And and I had originally looked at it as a sort of cultural, you know, um, investigation. I really thought that the answer was going to be in just the way that Americans think about birth yeah, and death. Yeah. And that's certainly part of the answer. But the more really, the, the interesting thing from a political science perspective was just all of the regulatory um, tangles that people operate in. So that that's the theme that really emerged from the book. Yeah, you. I, I wanted to actually read a very short little passage from the book here. This is actually on page five. I was in the bathtub and, I, and the pages are even a little crinkly here because I was like, looking up and looking down at the book and then looking up and I was like, who is this woman? And like, how, how did she put this together? And it it is no surprise to me that you, you know, you gave birth yourself and you thought about it three nine month periods over, right? You were thinking about this, you've had loss in your own family. And I mean, I also want to give kudos to you for an acknowledge that to come to these conclusions and to create some of these metaphors, which I'm about to read is actually quite sophisticated. You know, I mean, it's inconvenient and confronting to think about these things because these are two important rites of passage that we go through. Yet, there's all of these other players involved that perhaps shouldn't be involved or maybe not as heavily invested in the process. And I guess that's why we're here. I guess that's what, you know, what brought you and I together. So here's the little uh, passage. Just as the geography of the landscape in a watershed directs water in particular directions into valleys and downhill... The structure of the landscape of healthcare policies directs resources and patients downstream towards more incentive or more intensive options in centralized hospitals. This intensive and centralized care contributes to more expensive and often inappropriate care, particularly for pregnant women, the elderly, and terminal patients, all of whom have unique needs compared to other patient populations. So that's a heavy paragraph, and it's a beautiful paragraph. And I think that it captures precisely what we're experiencing. As a physician, I can tell you, we contract with insurance companies, and we have a certain boundaries within we have to practice. If you had told me when I was in residency that the systems in place that we call our, quote, healthcare system, which offers the promise of safety and convenience and whatever, cleanliness, whatever it is, regulations, if you had told me that, hey, I think the systems that you're learning how to practice are actually leading people downstreams where they have no, they're, they've dropped their oar a long time ago, they've got no paddle, and they're just being led down this medical train, and the speed is picking up and they're losing total control, I wouldn't have believed you. But tell me, from your experience, you, know, you, you had a good hospital birth, we had a good hospital birth, our first, our second was at home for complicated reasons, but we're so grateful that we did it at home. But in your birth experience, or maybe even in births that you've explored through interviewing for this book, can you give me an example of how this may be, uh, you know, how is this experienced and how do we not see it as consumers? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, it was even just the, the beginning of asking why I needed to have an, an IV Order of a heplock, right, um, you right. know. So, so the first thing that they do, right, is they stick you in triage, and you have to labor on your back, and they 
you know, they, they get the strip and then they put a needle in you in, in preparation for, <laughs> and, and, you know, I remember just having conversations with friends of mine and, and I didn't want it. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, did, yeah. I just felt like this was the first step, but for a lot of people that's, so first of all, that's the standard of care, yeah. meaning that, and, and I actually had this conversation with my doctor. I said, what do I have to do to not get this? And she <laughs> said, well, I have to write you a letter giving you quote unquote permission mm -hmm. to reject this needle uh, in your arm that we keep in your chart. Yeah. And so when you get to the hospital, if I'm not there, then that allows you <laughs> to reject this, this unnecessary sort of preparatory uh, treatment. And I thought to myself, what a crazy <laughs> statement, right? That I need a letter of a, a letter of permission from my doctor to decline an unnecessary intervention. And that, and, and, and it's a not lot totally of people, benign. It hurts like hell to have an IV placed. So you're in there in labor, yeah. and somebody's going to shove something sharp into your body. Just, I'm just yeah, going to throw that in there. <laughs> well, yeah, and then and then it does stuff. So I ended up having to get one later on because yeah. um, because it was a very difficult back labor, and I actually needed IV hydration, and I was fine with it at that point. Right? Like, yeah, I'm okay yeah, with this, yeah. right? But then even then, you know, then the situation is you. If I'm trying to labor in the tub, I have to hold my arm above water. Right. It really does right. interfere right. with the birthing process. Yeah, and I just don't think people. I think people see it as like, well, what's the harm of a you know, what's the harm of it? It's a, just an IV. An IV yeah. It's just an IV port. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think that was one of the first ones that I really noticed. And, and I think that one is probably the first, like most obvious step that most women will, will have when they get into the hospital. Others I think are more pernicious. Um, you know, I, I talk about her in the book, but it was a, a friend of mine was trying to get a, she, she had had a first C-section and she wasn't sure if it was medically necessary, but she knew that she wanted a VBAC for her second, or at least to try for a VBAC. And her doctor just told her that she wasn't a good candidate. She sort of looked at things later and realized that part of the reason that she was not quote unquote, a good candidate is that the way that ACOG had structured the requirements for VBAC monitoring, essentially, he would have to be, her physician would have to be in the hospital the entire time that she labored. And that was the, that was the, those were the guidelines when she was going into labor. And so it's just, it's not worth his mm. time. Right. Mm. And, and he said sort of as much and she just, and so this, there's a lot of conflation within the medical world that where we conflate liability risk with patient risk right. with, right. you know, resource management. And, and it's so hard for patients to, to tease apart what is an actual medical requirement right. and what is a liability fear. Right. And that's like this huge problem with hospitals generally is that mm. the way that like labor and delivery is structured is is really not for the comfort and and safety of women. It's it's for the hospital safety. Yeah. Right. It's right. a liability right. hedge. So those are just sort of two examples. But there's lots of other ones that we could talk about. It isn't news any longer that we need to be hydrating throughout the day, obviously. But if you're pregnant and you've got these crazy fluid shifts happening, you need to make sure that you're drinking adequate water. The problem is that a lot of home filtration systems for water will deplete the water of electrolytes and trace minerals, as you would find in nature, right? Nature, you've got like a hot tea loaded with trace minerals. But when we filter all those minerals out, we end up with pure H2O, which is not necessarily the best way to support hydration. So fortunately, a new company that I'm partnering with, Needed, has a hydration support product. And it's, it comes as a lemon-flavored powder. It's flavored with real fruit. And it contains magnesium, chloride, sodium, potassium, amongst a bunch of other trace minerals. And this promotes, as a package, promotes optimal hydration in your pregnancy in the postpartum period. So when you're taking this regularly, you're going to have optimal fluid balance. You're going to help support pH levels, blood pressure, blood flow. You're going to help reduce swelling, promote hormone balance. You're going to support optimal bone health. This product also supports the nerve conduction, muscle function. This is all going to be critical, especially if you're approaching the third trimester and you're into the postpartum period and you're breastfeeding your baby. So if you want to try this out, and I can't recommend Needed's hydration support product enough, go to thisisneeded.com. Use code BELOVED, B-E-L-O-V-E-D, and you'll save 20% off of Needed's hydration support. Can't recommend it enough, guys. Go and check it out. Try it out. Let me know how it goes. Let's get back to the show. I wanted to go back to something you had said about, uh, well, a couple things, but you had said, you know, you, when you present to your doctor, I want to have a, 
a birth plan or whatever, the fact that the response is, well, that's we're a little stupid superstitious because birth plans, that's not actually how it's going to go. I think that this is for both the healthcare professional listening and for the the pregnant woman who's going to be giving birth. Putting together a birth plan is not like putting together the flight plan and you're going to tell the airplane how to or the pilot how to fly the airplane. This is this is what the ideal scenario looks like. So it's not even just the power of manifestation. It's saying, "Hey, for me Lauren Hall, this is how I would ideally like things to happen." It's no sweat if they don't happen that way. But if I don't have any preferences, then we are we are putting all of the onus on the quote captain of the ship, which if I could eliminate that from the vernacular of OBGYNs, I would, because you are not the captain of the ship, nor is real I mean the the woman is, if anybody, the captain of the ship. But even the woman giving birth doesn't have control over every aspect of this. So to say, hey, don't worry about putting your your intentions down because it's not going to happen anyways, is already setting you off on that path on the on the medical train. And then the other thing I also I want, just want to yeah, add ahead. really quickly that Please. you know it's also crazy that that we think this way in the medical field when we would we literally would not say that about any other anything. Thing. I remember else. my husband has right. a military background and he goes, "In what universe? Like nobody creates like a battle plan. Like it, it, nobody ex- assumes that a battle plan is going to go exactly the way that it's laid out. That's right. not what it's right. for. Right. Right. Right." But nobody walks into battle without a plan, right? So he, <laughs> That's he such was an just awesome horrified. Yeah. Like he was like, "What? Why in the world would you?" Sure. You know, so, so, and that was his first inkling that that the that this was not going to go well. <laughs> well, I mean, but, so let's let's run with that metaphor a little bit. You set up a budget for your summer vacation. Who says it that down to the dollar you're going to be spending that amount of money? Maybe it's more. Maybe it's less. Maybe you go freaking into bankruptcy. That's probably not a good plan. But the point being that we use planning and anticipation of possible pitfalls and this and that. That is exactly what we do every day in every aspect of our life. We plan out our evenings, our meals. Like, So why would we not want to have a plan as a, here's the ideal. If we have to veer off left or right, that's fine. Um, and then I'll also add to that, that if you bring a plan into battle or any of these other scenarios, and then some external force starts doing things that couldn't possibly have been planned for, then of course the plan falls apart. Because if, if a part of your plan is that the other, the enemies don't have guns, and now suddenly they show up with guns in the war analogy, well, then your plan's not going to perform very well, right? In the same way, if the doctor starts bringing in language or, or interventions that you didn't even know was a possible thing to happen, because we haven't educated you about the possible scenarios, which is another big beef of mine within the uh, conventional model, then your birth plan, of course, is going to fail. It's almost like it was set up to fail because you didn't have the information in order to actually make some informed decisions ahead of time as to what the possible unfoldings of your birth might look like. So I think that the war metaphor is, a, is it sounds extreme and it's sort of an embellishment, but I think it's a perfect metaphor. The other thing I wanted to say is that um, you brought up the word permission. I was type, I was writing down some notes here to share with you about the IV line. My wife and I, we had a, a hospital birth, as I mentioned, and it was a six-hour labor, started at home, transferred her over there at 10 centimeters. This was all her choice. I support her decision. Even though had I driven a little slower, that baby probably could have popped out right in the car. That wouldn't <laughs> have been ideal for anybody, including the baby. <laughs> yeah. But uh, But we moved over to the hospital and we were like hands off, low intervention. I was an OBGYN in the, this hospital at the time. So they knew that I was like, we're going to have one nurse there, maybe the doctor. It's the mom and her partner. And we're holding space for this process, you know, and I will hide in the corner behind a black drape if I have to and only get my hands involved if needed. So we were all ready. And the first thing they did while she was leaning over the bed and she's at 10 centimeters. So she's going into that, that transitioning into the second stage. She's about to roar. And they're finding a vein on her hand. And she's like, she looks at me like, I thought we weren't going to do IV fluids. And they're like, oh, 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 honey. Yeah, you're not going to get IV fluids, but it's policy that we have to put the, this, the sharp thing in your hand. So she looked at me, not like I had deceived her, but she looked at me like, what the hell is this? Like, I, nobody even made that distinction. I didn't think it was necessary to make that distinction. So I was sort of like whipping myself unnecessarily. But, you know, the, yeah. the, this idea of getting permission to do everything. I don't know where that came from, but you hear it all the time. 
well, you're not allowed, you know, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. Or am I, even better, am I allowed to refuse the IV line? Mm-hmm. It's as if when you walk into a hospital, suddenly you have to ask permission to do everything when really the reality is that your job as a physician, I say this all the time, is to give risks, benefits, alternatives, provide a recommendation, don't use coercive language, and then support them in their decision. If you can do that, you will be the best doctor on the planet because nobody is training doctors to do that. So any any thoughts about anything I just said? I rambled a bit there. No, that, that was exactly, um, there, there's actually a woman, Kristen Pasucci, who does, um, she runs, uh, Birth Monopoly. Still, yeah, Birth Monopoly. Yeah, I know Kristen. And she has yeah. that great tagline, you're not allowed to not allow me. Um, <laughs> it's just yeah. pushing back on this yeah. idea that you, telling a, a, a woman that she's not allowed yeah. to decline, I mean, apart from just sort of the paternalism and the authoritarianism involved, I mean, you, you know, I, I just can't imagine another... Mm area of life where that would be sort of just the standard way yeah. that, we, that we talk to people. So um, absolutely. And, and we had those conversations all the time. And I had just, I had a wonderful birth team um, for, for all three of my pregnancies. And, you know, so I would just go in there and say like, here's what I, <laughs> you know, here's what I'm going to do. Yeah. But, you know, there are always these, like you were saying, there, there's things that you just don't expect because you right. don't realize that it's going to happen. So, I mean, with my first, they almost, um, actually, my first and my second, and I should have realized it was the second, but they interrupted us so many times yeah. after the birth. So I'm sitting there trying to get sleep. And yeah, I think they came in and actually did my newborn's hearing test at like 2 a.m. Wow. And I was like, there's no reason to interrupt a woman who has just given birth and her newborn to give a hearing test at 2 a.m. And so it was just one of those examples of hospital protocol taking over sort of trampling on the needs of patients. And there's a lot of research, as you know, about sleep and how hospitals are just awful for sleep. But we didn't know that it wasn't until my third pregnancy that we had a note put on the door that said, do not disturb between the hours of 10 and six. You are not allowed in this room. Period. (laughs) For any reason. Yeah. Yeah. Between 10 and six. And so we figured it out. But why does it take three births and two really serious bouts of sleep deprivation in the hospital to finally figure out how to reject this kind of intrusion. So, yeah. 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 Well, we're going to talk a little bit about death as well. Um, But I hope that people are understanding that if you replace the word birth with death and um, any intervention in birth with any intervention that we do at the very end of life, it is literally the same story that happens at the other end. And as a hospice palliative care doctor, you mentioned the distractions. Uh, there was this. Uh, there's a. There's a great conference called Endwell that happens in San Francisco every year, and I, I don't know if they're still doing it because COVID kind of rattled the whole flow. But what they would, what they did is they would bring people in to talk about to engage conversation around end of life issues, right? And it, it's kind of a a sexier, kind of like a TED Talk style, right? Where there's not medical conference presentations of papers and studies. It's more let's engage conversation with in- interesting people from all walks of life about this. And they had a woman there. Her name was Yoko Sen, who gave a presentation. She's a, uh, I would call her a composer, sort of like a sound illustrator, so to speak. And she gave a talk whereby she related that when you're in a hospital setting, imagine if you were dying in a hospital. Imagine the sounds and the interruptions and the distractions from the sacred process of dying Imagine what it could sound like otherwise. And she really implores the crowd to consider what are the final sounds that you would want to hear before that last sense. We believe that that's the last sense that goes. Not that we have any real data on that, but you know, a lot of people will be actively dying and they can hear what's going on in the room because they may get one little last final lucid moment and they may thank somebody that's in the room, not having known that they were there apart from that they maybe heard their voice. So Anyways, she played this beautiful composition of other sounds that might be more engaging in a hospital setting. And it gets all the way into the acoustics of how we build the rooms, you know? And what if instead of, uh, and, and so then if we consider the sounds of, of at the end of life, what if in the beginning of our life, as we're emerging through this oppressive force and the cervix is opening and there's the light, I mean, it's almost the same process of dying, right? What if instead of coming into the room and having all the distractions and the interruptions and the, and the drying you off and shooting you with needles and putting goop in your eyes and like it's a total cluster in there when a baby comes, what if instead you emerged into the world to the sound of singing and rejoicing 
and people holding space, maybe utter silence in order to hear the baby's first breaths and to allow the mom to engage with the baby without any distraction. Shut out the bright lights. Turn on an amber salt lamp if you need light. You know, and so so reading your book, it immediately, I had a hard time sticking in one in one role that I play because gosh, if we can make birth better, we can also make death better. And if we can make death better, perhaps we can make life better because now you have this privilege of dying and you're not hooked up to machines. You're actually being loved and kissed and cared for by your loved ones. But the same goes for a baby. So um, anything you wanted to add to that? Again, another ramble, but I've been so excited to talk to you about some of these things. No, I love it. Yeah. I mean, part of my interest in, in death, I mentioned that my my grandparents both died in hospice at home, but mm-hmm. we were, I had the the deep gift of being in the room with my grandmother when she passed away. And she was at home um, at my grandparents' farm that they had built together to retire on. Wow. And we were all sitting in the living room and she uh, she had died of, she was dying of lymphoma. It wasn't an easy death. I don't want to romanticize it, right? Um, you know, dying of cancer, particularly that type of cancer, was very painful. We were uh, keeping her comfortable as much as we could with morphine. I'm sure it was still very, very painful for her. But we had we had just sort of, you know, soothed her, checked in. Um, by that point, she was not responsive, but she was still with us. And so we sat there with my with my grandfather, who was just did not understand and really struggling to accept the fact that his wife of, you know, 40 some years was, was dying. Um, and we, we sat there and, and then there was silence. It was the first silence that we'd heard, right? Because the rattle, her, her breathing had stopped. Mm. And so we sat there and thinking about it later, I just thought to myself, you know, how, how much more we actually had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with her. My mom called the hospice nurse, you know, we, we did all of that stuff, but it was deeply peaceful. Mm. And I thought about my grandfather, right? This man who's just had his partner torn from him, whose life is fundamentally changing, right? She was the, the director of that particular, uh, she was the captain of that particular ship. And, and so here you have a man who's lost his sort of guidepost Yeah. and how much more traumatic would it have been for him to, to, if she had been in a hospital, he would not have been there when she died. She, he would have been ushered back and forth. He wasn't capable of driving at that point. So he would have been far away. Um, he would have had to go visit. He would, you know, he would have been in a waiting room. Right? I mean, just yeah. all of the things, yeah. all of the things that compound that trauma yeah. and make it so much harder than it needs to be. Yeah. And so that was part of my, like part of my frustration with birth is that we make birth harder than it needs to be with all of these interruptions and all of these just in interventions that slow the body's process. Yeah. But we also make death so much more traumatic than it needs to yeah. be. And, and everything from the sounds, the constant interruptions. Um, I can't remember who it is. It might be Jessica Zitter, but there, there have been multiple palliative care physicians who have pointed out that the constant interruptions do more than just make it sort of like they're not, they're more than just annoying. They actually make it hard for yeah. patients to accept what to come to terms with their situation. And yeah. so this sort of constant activity is so damaging for, for people who are giving birth and people who are dying in very similar ways. So I completely agree. I think more attention to, and, and that's why home birth and home death, I think are so powerful mm. because they give you that environment, that opportunity to control the environment. There's so much about birth and death that you cannot control. Right. And, and so much of those processes involve seeding control. Yeah. But being able to provide an environment that actually allows that process to happen, allows the individual to process some of what's happening in general, I think is something we overlook and it's terrible. I think it, it, it results in really terrible outcomes for yeah. people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it, I say this all the time on my show, but what we've we've kind of condensed or distilled the experience of being in a hospital down to just the measurable things, right? Blood loss, infection mm-hmm. rates, whatever patients die in your hospital, it looks bad on your stats, you know, so it's, as long as it's measurable, it's important. If it's not measurable, then we don't really know what to do with it. We kind of put it on the back burner. If we can hit those things like the patient experience or some of the spiritual, emotional parts of being alive, then so be it. I wanted to, I wanted to read a little snippet here because I think it is directly related to what you, uh, what you just said. Um, While a kidney transplant may be mostly the sum of its medical parts, birth and death are much more than medical. They are composed of individual beliefs and attitudes, cultural traditions, and religious and legal practices that influence both treatments and outcomes. Birth and death are, as a consequence, much more preference-sensitive than other kinds of healthcare events. Birth plans, hello, 
<laughs> they require much more input about patient preferences, much more options for care, and continuous high-quality communication between patients and providers to explore how those preferences and available options can align. So, I mean, in a nutshell, in one paragraph, you've kind of illustrated exactly why we need birth plans. In many cases, we also, we could call the advanced directive process really the a part of death planning. And we're not talking estate planning and you know, settling, you know, sending your, 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 you know, assets to probate or anything like that. We're talking about how can you imagine your ideal death? Later on the same page, you say birth is no longer intimately linked with death and death is no longer a completely uncontrollable process. And I think that what we're being faced with in both birth and death, as we've over-medicalized it, you know, from the title of your book, The Medicalization of Birth and Death, I think that what we're struggling with, with these two these two experiences is that they are the two moments in your life where you are guaranteed to have to face your own mortality. You as a woman, Lauren, you were different before and after your first baby, before, before and after your second baby, and before and after your third. So was your partner. So were these little kids. You know, they change. We change with these incredible rites of passage. So how do you think we ended up with a system that has become so confronted by mortality especially when it's people that are sitting with these two rites of passages day in and day out that are helping to, to perpetuate these policies? Well, I think, so is your question sort of how we, how we started to think about it this way or, or what? Yeah, I mean, I guess what is, the, what is the, the original sin here? How did our system get to a place where we're not really able to recognize this as a human experience any more than we are able to see it as a medical procedure to die or to mm-hmm. give birth? Yeah, I, I think some of it has to do with the. There was a dramatic change in science um, mm. itself in the um, in the early part. Well, really, sort of the 18th century, early 19th century, where we started to think about science. Prior to that point, had really been about observing the natural right. world, so observing patterns, trying to understand the. Um, uh, in my classes, I talk a lot about uh, sort of the concept of natural law and thinking about sort of looking for patterns in both the natural world, but also the human social world. But we had very little ability to control anything. And, and so that that's where the, the sort of older understanding of science was really just sort of observing, trying to find patterns and trying to fit yourself into that world in some way, shape or form. The modern understanding of science, um, and, and a lot of this too has to come out or, or has to do with the, the sort of development of, of scientific education, which there was this really important, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, there was this really important move to standardize care because a lot of what they were really fighting, things like infectious diseases, you do actually want to standardize care. Like there's a way to approach infectious diseases where if you give the wrong type of antibiotics, it doesn't work. Right. So you, you want to do this. So this experimental kind of standardized approach to medical protocolized way of treating disease. Yeah. 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 And, and everything. So, so even going further back than that, right, the, the scientific method is is a way of controlling variables and standardizing the mm-hmm. thing that you're studying. Mm-hmm. And so with medicine, there, there came this sort of attempt to combine that understanding, the scientific the sort of standardization with the idea that now we can actually control right? Um, we can control infectious disease. We can control a variety of things. Yeah. Um, but as I point out in the book, and I've talked about this a little bit um, in some of my recent articles, the there was a hubris involved in this. So the earliest obstetricians claimed they had a lot more knowledge and a yeah. lot more wisdom than they actually did. And so, you know, we see maternal mortality rates increase in the mm. early hospitals, right? They increase when physicians start attending births. Um, and that's because there was this hubris that, well, if I, if I get in there and I get my hands dirty, literally, I will, you know, I can save lives that way. And they were wrong. Whereas midwives and, and midwifery in general, which comes from this more more traditional understanding of science where you observe patterns. Mm-hmm. If a woman is is moving in this particular way and her hip is is in this particular sort of is pointing in this direction that might tell me how the baby's positioned. Yeah. And so I need to work within the context of her body to try to position her, right? So so you're sort of working with nature, but it's by recognizing patterns. Yeah. So midwives knew that that wasn't going to work for birth, but but the but the sort of physicians with this general standardized model that worked really well for some aspects of medicine does not yeah. work. Right. For these other kinds. So again, I I I love medicine. I love the fact that I haven't lost my children to scarlet fever. I love the fact that, you know, I, I have 
a variety of things, right? Yeah. But we overuse it. And, yeah. and physicians recognize that we overuse it. Public health folks recognize that we overuse it. That's not a controversial statement at all. We overuse medical tools across the board and across disciplines. Yeah. But it's really, really bad when you're dealing with things that can't be standardized. And right. so that's where I'm looking at birth. I'm looking at death. You can't. My birth was completely idiosyncratic. I didn't want pain medication. Other people want pain medication. That's not a value I'm going to shove onto other people, right? That's a preference that I had for a variety of complicated reasons. Yeah. And so if someone had tried to standardize either my birth as the standard or someone else's birth, like an epidural birth as the standard, both of us would be fundamentally unhappy. Right? <laughs> so just, I think things, you know, the, the passage that you read, I think says it really well, which is that there's just deep preference sensitivity in, in a lot of areas of medicine that we are not, we are not accessing because we're trying to standardize patients in really pernicious ways. Geriatrics is a great example of just how we're, we're over-treating the yeah. elderly. The and polypharmacy really... issues and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When I became an OBGYN, I had no idea how much time I was going to be spending counseling my patients about gut health. And the reality is that a lot of women are put on birth control pills for a period of time. This messes up the delicate balance between the good and the bad bacteria to oversimplify it. But in reality, that's, that's, that's the crux of the issue. Add that to our high C-section rates in the United States, um, relatively low breastfeeding rates, although both of those numbers are gradually improving with time. And a host of antibiotics that people receive in their lifetime, and they end up with gut dysbiosis. And if 70% of your immune system lives in the lining of your gut, when that balance of good and bad bacteria gets out of whack, you end up with immune dysregulation. You end up with mood disorders due to the serotonin production and secretion and receptors in the gut. And so you have all these, these medical issues that really just start in the gut. And fortunately, this, this body of research is growing. But unfortunately, there's not a lot of good pre and probiotic products out there. Well, fortunately, Organifi makes one of my favorites. It's called Balance. It comes in these nifty little single-serving packages, and they contain a host of different bacteria, including Lactobacillus, uh, Paracasei, Remnosus, um, there's Saccharomyces boulardii, and then, of course, our favorite Lactobacillus acidophilus, which will help replenish some of that beneficial bacteria in the gut in order to get it back into proportion with those pathogenic bacteria. But then, in addition, once you've you've resupplied the gut with these healthy bacteria. Organifi's balance also includes some Jerusalem artichoke, which has a whole bunch of starchy components to it as a prebiotic. So it actually feeds this bacteria that you've now repopulated in the gut. Get your gut working again, get your autoimmune issues, your chronic inflammation under control, get some of this mood rebalancing happening. If you'd like to try this product, I've got a special deal for you. Go to Organifi.com. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com slash Beloved, B-E-L-O-V-E-D, or just enter code Beloved at checkout. You'll save 20%. You can try out Balance at a nifty galifty discount. You can tell I watched Daniel Tiger with my daughter. nifty galifty is straight from Oh the Owls, <laughs> one of the characters' mouths. That's again Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com slash Beloved, or enter code Beloved. You'll save 20%. Get yourself some balance. Get your gut working again and uh, get yourself back on track. Let's get back now to my conversation. I think that we're seeing this, this sort of desperate grasp for control in a lot of aspects of our society. And I'm not even talking about politically. I mean, like in our ag agricultural systems, right? The more science we throw at the problem, we expect to get better yields, better outcomes, as we call it in medicine, but in agriculture, you're, you're looking at yields. Well, the law of diminishing returns kicks in pretty quickly for certain aspects of agriculture, right? So what we started doing was sterilizing our fields. And yes, that eliminated insects and rodents and other weeds and everything. But now we're left with a single crop that is not being nourished by companion plants that generally grow around it because mother nature knows better than us. So in the same way that we've tried to overhaul the wisdom of mother nature, and I'm not trying to get too woo-woo here, even though I'm way out of the woo closet. I mean, I'm being very like, this is not controversial anymore. We know that we're destroying vi otherwise viable farming lands by growing monocultures and only uh, and, and actually reverse engineering plants in order that only corn grows right here in this 5,000 acre plot. 
um, we know that we're destroying the soil. So if you if you take that same mentality and apply it to the human body, it's a very Cartesian reductive view of a field. If you apply that through the lens of Rene Descartes, it said, hey, each of these systems works independently. And if we get all of the parts of the of the computer motherboard working well, then the computer runs faster. Well, we're not computers. We're not automobiles. We're human beings. And we have more subtle bodies and energetics that are at play here, which is probably why when you think about, you were describing trauma at end of life. Well, the unfortunate part of imposing these mechanisms of control in the birth process is that a woman going through a birth who isn't feeling heard or seen or feeling cared for and safe in birth, it can be very, very traumatizing. And that's because they're not dying. They are surviving this. And whatever comes out on the other end, the medical system's like, hey, hey, we did our job, healthy mom, healthy baby. But instead you're left with a woman who feels like I wasn't, I wasn't taken care of. Why did you do those things to me? You know, and they're like, well, you, if you came to us, why didn't you want us to do things to you? Because that's not the role of a hospital. The role of the hospital is to do the things that can help after having a conversation with the patient. And that's why that paragraph in the book is, is so critical. So without getting too far down that hole, I also want to ask you a little bit about your grandparents had the, the gift of, of dying at home. I would also echo what you said. There's not a such thing as a good death. I don't think that there's even such a thing as a good birth because it's not my value system to be imposed on somebody else. Somebody who had a perfectly natural, healthy pregnancy might feel bad about their birth versus somebody who had a C-section and felt horrible about their birth or, or great about their birth versus bad. You know, it's, it's not my decision as to what's good or bad, which is why when we protocolize these things, not taking into account a person's values and beliefs and whatever that we oftentimes, you know, run ashore. But let's talk a little bit about the the death experience at home versus when we, we the sort of the version of a birth center is kind of a hospice inpatient center. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and some of the ideas you've clarified in your book about inpatient experience of dying versus the home experience? Yeah. So a lot of what I think we touched on in birth really, it applies so obviously in death. And, and it, I want to step back too and just say that I don't think that this is because that this happens because hospitals are like run by bad people or right, something like right, that, right? right? It happens because hospitals are unique places yeah. that have a lot of staffing, you know, considerations. They have liability considerations. There's a lot of pressures that push hospitals to standardize care and do the kinds of things that they do. But I think it's really fair to say, and, and I've talked to a lot of palliative care physicians, I've talked to um, nurses, I've talked to critical care nurses, I've talked to lots of people, and they all agree that you know the problem with dying in a hospital is very similar to birthing in a hospital, which is that the system is not set up around you, mm. right? And so that's the big difference, right? And at home, dying at home, it's the whole experience is mm. set up around you and your specific needs. Now, does that mean all of those needs are always met? Of course not, right? And and again, death is is really complicated. Um, it's often painful. It's often terrifying. So we're not talking again. I, I just like we're not talking about sort of like some ideal utopian world, but it's about a model where the person who is dying is at the center of the decision-making process and the center of the experience, as opposed to in a hospital where they are tangential to mm. the activity that's going on. And so um, my sister is a palliative care nurse practitioner. And so she, you know, she talks about her frustration of, you know, she'll get called in to have a conversation with a patient. And then a little while later, the oncologist visits and completely sort of undoes whatever conversation she's just had. <laughs> but then family comes in and then the conversation either has to start again or doesn't have to start again because the family members have some other complicated preference scheme. And so it's, it's this fragmentation means that nobody is, is working. You can sort of picture it as, you know, a sort of system where there's this deep fragmentation and all of the activity is, is yeah. aimed outward, right. Yeah. As opposed to inward. Right. Whereas in hospice, you know, we, especially when my grandparents died, you know, the nurse would come and would, sit with the family in the same room as the patient. And we knew sort of more or less when they were going to be there. We had one contact person. It was just a more, it was a more simple process mm. and it was just fundamentally patient centered. And that term gets overused yeah. all over the place, yeah. but yeah. it really was right. It, it was human centered. I, I just don't think hospitals are capable of that. And I actually think it's too much to ask them to be. Right. I think we are right. asking too much of hospitals. And so I'm deeply sympathetic to the various pressures that hospitals are under. But but that's an argument for a better model, like a, a different 
system yeah to let hospitals do what they do really well which is acute care you know really serious like if i have if i need surgery i want to be in a a good hospital yeah but that's not necessarily true for death or dying yeah or like a, a horrible blood infection or if you do need that occasional it should be an occasional emergency c section hell like mm-hmm. i can do that in 35 seconds you know mm-hmm. we can definitely serve you if you've got a bullet through the chest if you have a yeah. horrible leg deformation if you had you know, like after some car accident, if you've got, you fell off of your, you know, you jumped into water and hit your head on rocks, and now you're going to need some emergency neurosurgery. Like there's a lot of good reasons to have hospitals. But in the same way that, uh, you know, you're, you're going to be a little bit underwhelmed if you go and ask a doctor about what can I eat and, uh, you know, what, what's a good diet and what's a good exercise pattern, which they're not trained to do. We go to the hospital and we've demanded that hospitals accommodate. Now, Again, there's some hubris here, but ever since physicians took over the practice of birth keeping from midwives and other birth workers, not all that long ago, we're talking like 150 years ago, by characterizing them as these dirty, stupid, whatever housemaids or something that are, that are going to help you birth your baby, they took that over. Then they had to figure out how to actually make this make sense for people. And as the consumers saw this as an opportunity to birth in a healthy, sterile environment, we now are left with a spiritual issue, an emotional issue, but we're trying to f- solve it by protocolizing and putting more and more and more medicine towards the problem. But again, the law of, d- of diminishing returns kicks in pretty quickly there. So I, I, I echo you. I mean, there's, there's good reasons for us to have hospitals, especially if you're having a birth at home and something isn't going right and your midwife needs somewhere to go, please go to the hospital. Like there are people mm-hmm. like me there that can totally take care of it. But... If we continue to see it as something that can be controlled, then we're going to continue to intervene and create problems downstream that neither you nor your patient really signed up for or really had thought about happening. And now we've created a problem where we have, we've created an issue that only we can solve. And I think people see that as nefarious. And I don't think people are doing it intentionally. I don't think people know that there's another way to do this, which is why I have conversations like this on my mm-hmm. podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, when I had a, a fascinating conversation with a palliative care physician who um, he and I went on to do some you know, minimal work together, but he's just a fantastic guy. But he, yeah. you know, he said, I practice medicine completely differently in the hospital than than at home. Yeah. Right. So yeah. so when he's visiting a patient in hospice at home, just his whole approach is different. He mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm a guest in their home in the first place. So he's not the captain of the ship as he is sort of in a hospital environment. Right, he's, right. he's a guest. He has to sort of now respect a variety of things that maybe he wouldn't think about in the hospital. But even more than that, the protocols aren't there, right? So, so he's, he's able to do more with pain relief. He's able to do more with medication than, than he could do in the hospital because the hospital protocol standardizes the kind of care that he can provide. So doctors are frustrated by this too. This is not just patients. This is, again, a system that is not set up to do what we're asking it to do. Yeah. 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 And and we as physicians and nurse practitioners and everybody else, we go through a training program that anticipates we're going to be working in the hospital environment. So it's not like in your education, it's like, hey, here's one way to do it. Here's another way to do it. One big criticism I hear from the community that I'm serving of women who are like, I'm not ever going back to a hospital again. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's do our best then and keep you out of there. (laughs) I think they have the impression that doctors chose to do it this way, but it's almost like a fish can't, doesn't know water, right? You're just swimming Mm -hmm. in your fish tank. And you know, there's that, that famous little, uh, sort of illustration, like, uh, water feels warm today. Like what the hell's water, you know, like two fish passing by. And that's kind of how it is as a medical trainee. When you grow up in a system, uh, it's sort of like growing up in a two-party political system. Like you don't even know what it's like to have a parliamentary system because you have never experienced anything other than that. So when I was in training, we had midwives in our practice at at, uh, my residency training program. I was fortunate enough to have mentors in the OBGYN community who were attending home births. So I would attend home births and I got to see what a natural physiologic birth looked like. But it, and it's similar with hospice. Like once you see how how lovely it can be as a doctor who's being invited into the home in order to make a little old lady feel better, it's almost like you don't want to go back, right? But having that experience as a doctor, you also realize like, whoa, this is so dramatically, drastically different from what I was trained to do. You know, it brings the humanity back. It brings the 
I'm a young man caring for this older woman and I'm going to hold her hand. I'm going to put lotion on her feet. Maybe I'll trim her toenails. I'll make sure that she has a, she's comfy, cozy in bed. Just make sure all of her physical creature comforts are cared for. And by golly, had I cared for that woman in the hospital, she would never have been even as appreciative of the little tiny things that I did in the home, which are not expensive medical interventions. They're really just human to human care, which is why I think the midwifery model, I'm hoping to help it grow and to uplift it as this perhaps could be the standard of care for pregnant women. And yes, we have the surgeons, people like me, <laughs> I'm not uh, not passing mm-hmm. the buck here. <laughs> um, right. We have the surgeons to turn to whenever something does does need to happen acutely, like you said. So I hope that we can uh, we can start to change people's attitudes. I do think the attitudes are changing. I just hope that they're changing for the right reasons. I agree with you. I don't think that there's a bunch of bad guys out there just trying to take everybody's money. It does make me sometimes a little irked that physicians will say things like they said to you, like, well, we're superstitious about birth plans. Like, like why don't we just step back and like control the things we can control? We can't control that. So why not worry about the things we can control. And if we are needed, then, hey, we can put those magic fingers to, to, to work. But I think if people are coming around, I don't, I, in your experience, are, are physicians and, and the like, are they starting to open their hearts to this conversation? I think they are. And I think part of it's that physicians have lost so much in the last few decades in terms of, of autonomy. Um, more and more physicians are practicing under hospital umbrellas. And so they're they're feeling the the same kinds of pressures in some ways that patients are feeling. Um, and medical care is just changing, right? It's become, I think a lot of physicians are looking at the way that medical care has been standardized, how much time they spend in billing, how mm. much time they spend in charting, how much time they spend avoiding law, you know, like preparing for lawsuits, whether they yeah. come or not. Most of the physicians I know went into medicine because they deeply loved caring for people. Yeah right? And now that has been taken away from them too. And so I think there's been a lot of people trying to experiment with different ways of bringing medicine back to something closer to, you know, the, the, the reason people go into it in the first place, right? To help other human beings. Um, and I think we're seeing some hopeful models. So, um, I haven't checked in with them recently, but the Minnesota birth center, right. They have a sort of a triage model where they have midwives as the standard for low risk births. And then you, you only escalate up to an OB if there's issues, right. Which is of course like a pretty commonsensical model and and the U S is really surgeon heavy anyway, right? Like we, we defer to, or, or rather we start with, surgeons in ways that probably just doesn't make sense. So, yeah. So I think we're seeing some hope. I think that the medical and healthcare landscape is diversifying. So I think there's more space for nurse practitioners, for midwives, for physical therapists, for occupational therapists. Now the dangers though are going to be that that's just going to fragment care even more and that we're going to have these turf wars, which we already are seeing in some states, right? So the real opposition to midwifery licensing in a lot of states Mm. comes from the physician groups and they don't have support of the medical evidence. It's just a political argument, right? Like if, if, you know, we won't have the, we can't cede power because we won't have access to patient populations. So I can't say that I'm super optimistic, but I do see really interesting movements happening at the grassroots level that I'm excited about. Like these like pockets of reform, and also really creative thinking. Um, in the book, I talked about um, a, a really common model in upstate New York, which as far as I can tell is not really anywhere else in the United States, are these homes for the dying. So they're these small two-bed two homes. <laughs> um, and they're usually run by donations from church groups. They, they don't get any funding from the government or, or anyone else. And people who can't, who, who don't have the option of having hospice at home because either they don't have a home or maybe they don't have family who can be there, right? There's this sort of growing mutual aid kind of model that I think is really interesting. Again, I think there's hopeful signs that we're thinking more creatively about how to do this well. Yeah, we have a a facility here in Louisville that I I don't know if it's still in operation because it was closed down for COVID for probably still closed down for all I know. But when I was still working in hospice, there was the uh, the building was called the Hildegard House, which is you know the namesake mm-hmm. is Hildegard von Bingen, who's a sixth century mystic poet, Renaissance woman, and uh, she probably was just just a nurse. I'm using air quotes on my end back then, but she mm-hmm. had the f- far superior capabilities than probably most men alive then, and uh, she was a composer, did everything. But 
they named this center after her. And um, it's really a center for, it's a house for the dying, a home for the dying. And yeah, it's it's a lot of the homeless. It's a lot of people who have been estranged from families, a lot of people who have perhaps became uh, wards of the state, you know, for whatever reason, and they just don't have anybody out there to help care for them. And if you, you know, there, there's not big money to be made from those types of endeavors, but there are people out there who work in these centers that really, really believe in these models and they're living it. They're like living proof that humanity cares about these things. And, you know, in, in many regards to, to be a little cynical, as long as the medical system is hell bent on maximizing profits, we're probably not going to see a lot of that type of care because there's no and it's not it's not like a conspiracy it's not whatever it's just the reality like our entire economic system is hell bent on making better revenues for a board this year than they did last year you know and so when you get into the hospice care it's a package deal there's so much dollars per day that are spent which mm-hmm. is why we as hospice physicians have to be very thoughtful about how we use that money especially if it's being donated um, by church groups or whatever else. So I, I would love to see that model grow. And uh, I have this in my own vision for a retreat center for birth and death on the same location amongst, you know, amongst the trees. And um, we have a little pharmacy and we have great cooking and we have got music and dancing and and celebrating for these two things as opposed to medicalizing them <laughs> and mm-hmm. pathologizing them. So well, Lauren, thank you. We're we're uh, we're almost at an hour here. I I am so appreciative of your time. I know you're busy with your three little girls. You're a girl mom. I'm a dad mom, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I, I'm dad mom. I'm a girl dad. You're a girl mom, is what I was trying to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, we between the two of us, we've got five little girls, and I, I don't want to take any more of your time. So thank you so much for being here with me on my show. Your book is called The Medicalization of Birth and Death. You can get it everywhere. Is there anything else you'd like people to know about reaching out if they wanted to follow up with you and ask you more juicy questions? They can absolutely find me um, on the RIT website. That's my uh, that's my home institution. Uh, my email is lauren.hall at rit.edu. So please reach out. Um, I hear from people all the time, and it's really fantastic to uh, to connect with people, especially people who are trying to build something yeah. different. Yeah. That's yeah. I think exciting. Well, I'm so I'm so grateful that you wrote this book and I'm glad people are finding your work. We'll do our best to try to blast this out as much as we can. And uh thank and you. I, I'm just so appreciative of you. So thank you. Thanks very much. This has been great. Man, man oh man. Well I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I, I think that to sort of summarize this for anybody out there who doesn't have the time or patience to read a book like this, consider that there isn't one enemy here. There's not one villain. It's not like the doctor is the bad guy or the patient who's uneducated is the bad guy or the system at large is the bad guy. And I actually use this, this language whenever I counsel my patients around advanced directives, especially around end of life. But for women who are in birth, this, this language applies completely. You've got two options as to how you die. You can either jump on the medical train, right? And jumping on the medical train looks like you're on the tracks, the train's coming through, and there's really no break. You know, you're going to continue on this medical train. And the reason for that is that there aren't a lot of incentives to stop the train, to change directions. It's just too hard to get it turned around. It weighs too much, that big, big old train. So you just let it chug along the tracks until you hopefully get the outcome you're expecting. The alternative, at the end of life, by the way, the medical train usually means if I find somebody dead on the ground, I call 911, they break your ribs, they shock you. It's a very violent act of trying to get you back to life because CPR is not used when you're almost dead. CPR is used when you have died. So we can do that. You end up, the goal of CPR and all those resuscitative efforts is to get you on life support. Make no mistake about it. You go on life support and now you've got a tube in your throat, your ribs are broken, you are beat up, you're sore. If you were at 20% your maximum capacity before, now you're at 5 to 10. If that, you may never wake up. You may never move again. Of course, we don't know that. But if you've got, if you're 80 years old and you've got an advanced cancer, is that the path you want to take, given that there's a high chance you're not going to bounce back to where you were and that you're going to be a fraction of who you used to be before that event, you know? And I mean, like, immediately before. Like, you know, you're 80 years old on a Monday you're still kind of up and around, kind of getting things by. You've got somebody come into your house to help you. You get out of bed sometimes, but most of the day you're just watching TV, eating uh, food that's real convenient in the house. 
And then by Wednesday, you're now on life support and it's a very, very low chance you're going to come home, right? So the final touches in your life are, are sort of violent, aggressive in nature, but that could be what you want. And that's not my decision, similar to the birth conversation. On the other hand, the other path, instead of taking the medical train, is that your final touches are going to be words of love, words of compassion, being touched and held in a way that honors the life you've lived. There's no right answer here. But those are two different ways that people die in the United States. And that's the important conversation that many doctors don't have. And the same goes for birth, right? Of course, so we, we have birth planning. A lot of people in the medical system laugh at birth plans. It's not meant to be a dictation as to how birth is going to go, going to go. It's just what are your preferences, which is exactly the same question of how do you want to die? How do you want to birth? It's okay for us to ask that and then have to pull a, a pivot at the last second, you know? So this is really important stuff. And uh, of course, and really just hope you enjoyed that that podcast. If you want to find Lauren's book, I've put all of her information into the show notes and please check out our sponsors. This is needed.com for some of the best prenatal nutrition in the world. And then uh, organifi.com slash beloved or use code beloved at checkouts. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I, organifi.com. And you'll save 20% on some of their products. I uh, couldn't be happier to be recording this right now. I just feel so great. And I hope you do too. You can find me, Nathan Riley, at BelovedHolistics.com. I do see patients one-on-one. -on -one. You can schedule an intro call. It's a totally free 30-minute call to see if it's a good fit, and then you can buy a package of time. That's how I operate with my patients. I also have a collaborator program. If you frequently need to bounce things off of an MD that has allopathic training but also has a really holistic approach to his practice, you can sign up for my collaborator program there. I have midwives, doulas, birth educators, naturopaths, acupuncturists. I've got health coaches, check practitioners. I've got so many different people and it's been so great to be able to serve the world in that way. So you can find that also at belovedholistics.com. Um, I've also got uh, all the show notes from this episode will be found at holisticobjwanpod.com and sign up for a newsletter in either of those spots. Um, and then lastly, of course, nothing you heard on this episode is a replacement for your medical team's advice. If you have a medical concern or emergency, please go to the emergency room or call your doctor. This show is for entertainment and information purposes only. Until next time, I bid you adieu. Thank you so much for showing up and tuning in to the Holistic Obi-Joanne podcast. See you next time for episode 56. Take care, everybody.